0: Hello everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. Currently we're focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic and the numerous challenges it has unleashed on the healthcare industry and we're looking at how business leaders in the sector are managing them. In line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by Bill Newell. Uh, Bill has since uh, 2009 been the CEO of uh, Sutra Biopharma a publicly quoted clinical stage by a pharma company uh, headquartered in South San Francisco, California. Underpinned by a platform technology, the company is discovering, developing, and manufacturing therapeutics based on antibody conjugates, bispecific antibodies, and cytokine derivatives. um, And it's targeting cancer and autoimmune diseases. It has three programs in phase one, two of which are internal, while a third is partnered with Bristol Myers Square. So Bill, um, I hope you and those you care about are, are keeping safe and well, and thanks very much for, for, for joining me.
1: Good day, Mike, and thank you for having me on. And yes, everyone is doing well in our household. So, um, mercifully.
0: Great, great, that, know, that's, that's good to know. So, uh, first, um, Let's sort of, you know, sort of talk about sort of, you know, COVID nineteen and what would have been the sort of the the immediate or the most immediate impacts uh, of the pandemic on on the company and 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 its employees.
1: Well, of course, <clears throat> like many companies, um, when we were uh, asked to shelter uh, in place or shelter at home, uh, the company was highly compliant in that regard and we reduced our presence on-site, although employees continued to work. Um, But we are a different company in the sense that not only are we running several cancer trials, but we actually manufacture the drug for those cancer trials. And so one of the worst things that can happen to a cancer patient is to be told that there is no more drug available because you've stopped your production facilities. And so early on, we made the decision that we needed to continue to operate our manufacturing facility in as normal a manner as we could. Obviously, we needed to change the way in which we uh, brought people on site and the way they did their activities, which would have been without masks and in close proximity to one another in order to be able to safeguard the health of our employees, but we continued to manufacture. Uh, from a research perspective, we had some very critical late-stage programs that are on their way to the clinic. In fact, our partner, EMD Serrano, announced a bispecific antibody drug conjugate at a scientific conference quite recently that we have produced and that is going to go into clinical trials in the first quarter of next year. So that uh, obviously was a high-priority program Principally, these drugs are available initially to patients who have no other therapeutic option for them. They would likely be going to hospice. And so being able to give them an opportunity to have an extended life is something that's highly important. So we've managed to work through the pandemic, but not nearly at the levels that we were at before. Uh, and that's uh, you know an important to safeguard our employee population.
0: So the, uh, so I mean, we have seen sort of, you know, the sort of restrictions on movement and lockdowns has impacted both the conducting, you know, the conducting of existing clinical trials and the sort of the the uh, initiation of, of, of new ones. So, so, so in your experience, you've you've still been actually been able to, you know, keep keep those running and you're still on track to to initiate new trials.
1: Absolutely, Mike. It's really uh, a fundamental uh, of fundamental importance to the cancer patients that they get their treatment on a regularly scheduled basis. And I think we've been quite fortunate in that the trial sites that we uh, have initiated for the existing trials uh, are not by and large in the areas that were hotspots uh, for the pandemic. So we did not have A lot of sites in new york or a lot of sites in boston or in chicago or in los angeles and so in areas in the united states where the pandemic is less um, virulent if you will at this stage there are fewer cases and it's not rising as quickly hospital resources aren't as constrained what you see is that actually um, cancer centers are trying to continue with business as usual, because they are providing essential medical care to very sick patients. And so in the main, we've had to adjust a little bit of the way that the trials are done. Labs are not always taken at the investigator's site, maybe they're taken at a local uh, lab site, uh, and then the information is transferred to the investigator. But we've been able to move along relatively, uh, with relative little impact uh, for our cancer trials. And our partner, EMD Serono. Uh, hasn't had any difficulty getting into the final stages of preparing to start their phase one trial uh, in the first quarter of next year. Right, well,
0: and and you mentioned the fact that you know you you have manufacturing. So you know, had there been sort of, sort of any sort of significant sort of changes in 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 work practice at at, at that facility?
1: Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot more um, acrylic around. If I'd uh, known, I would have invested uh, in uh, the people who make plastic uh, barriers between uh, you know, cubicles. So um, that's been kind of the biggest physical change. In a manufacturing facility, particularly a GMP manufacturing facility, which this one is, workers gown up separately. They wear eyewear. Uh, they wear masks. That's part of the routine uh, process of, of manufacturing. Uh, We did have to adjust work schedules a little bit because we didn't want, and fortunately as of this date, no one in our company has tested positive. We didn't want uh, a whole shift to be uh, quarantined at home because of an individual uh, testing positive for the virus. And so as a consequence, we changed some of the work practices uh, where we could. Now there are certain practices where it's not safe to have an individual in a room by him or herself. And so as a consequence, we would end up uh, putting in some special gowning protections or special mask protections uh, in those uh, in those instances. But other than trying to separate the workers to give them their own space as much as possible, we've been pretty much able to keep that manufacturing facility on track uh, without, uh, without losing a beat.
0: Right. Now, one of the other things <clears throat> is you guys recently... Uh, was successful in raising sort of ninety-eight million dollars in, in, in a public offering. Um, so, given re- travel restrictions or you know, social distancing, the ability to actually meet face to face, what were the challenges associated with with that fundraising, and what was it that you did that actually ensured that you were able to, you know, sort of execute the, the sort of the financing plan?
1: You know, it was a really unusual financing for our company and and any company raising capital these days. You know, the typical uh, way we would have done it is we would be on airplanes. We would be to the major investment centers uh, in the United States and we'd be talking to investors around the world. Uh, And that would be a very concentrated effort over a a handful of days in order to really feel like there was investment interest in uh, the, the follow on offering that we did. Um, So in the absence of being able to do that, uh, we scheduled a number of Zoom calls just like this, um, and it was back to back to back. uh, And that's really uh, allowed us to at least uh, get in front of the investors in a uh, personal way, even if it's not in the same room, uh, and go over the data that we've generated and what the company's plans are uh, for the next year to two year period. And that was um at one level it was more efficient because I think we made many more zoom calls uh than we could have made in person visits at another level, it was um, not really as robust because it's harder for me I think to get the sense of where an investor Uh, sees opportunity or has uh, questions uh, from a Zoom video. If I'm sitting across the table, I can notice a lot of body language. When I'm talking to them on Zoom, I'm actually concentrating more on making certain that I'm coming across than being able to actually get a sense of how they're interacting to my messaging. So a little bit of a challenge, but we were supported by our investment bankers and we were prepared uh, with the uh, material that we wanted to share with investors and it worked out extremely well for the company. So I was delighted that uh, surprised a little bit that we, we could raise capital in this environment, but delighted that we were able to put enough money in the bank so that the company is financed into 2022.
0: Yeah. Now <clears throat> oncology and immuno-oncology in particular uh, is a very, very competitive space at, at, at the moment. You know, particularly we see a lot of companies sort of raising money, there's a lot of companies uh, so, you know, developing programs, et cetera. How does a, a company like Sutra Biopharma ensure that it's going to sort of you know, have share of voice? I you mean, know, as, as the CEO, you know, what what are your challenges around that?
1: You know, it's it's interesting. Some of the programs that we are working on are areas where it is a very, very crowded uh Uh, clinical and commercial environment. Uh, I'm gonna talk for a moment about our BCMA uh, antibody drug conjugate program, which is partnered with Bristol Myers Squibb. BCMA, B-cell maturation antigen, is a very important multiple myeloma target. And many in the industry believe that after available therapies are no longer working for a patient, that a BCMA targeted therapy is the right way to go. And there are multiple approaches to it. There are CAR-T therapies, there are bispecific therapies, and there are antibody drug conjugates, and we happen to have one of those. Uh, And that's partnered with Bristol-Myers Squibb. And I think what's important for us in that space is that we are partnered with Bristol-Myers Squibb. They are, uh, by virtue of their acquisition of Celgene, one of the leading companies, if not the leading company, treating multiple myeloma with a variety of different therapeutic approaches and a variety of different BCMA uh, modalities. And so by virtue of our partnership with them, our share of voice, if you will, is elevated because they are in the dialogue as the company that is really at the forefront of BCMA therapy in terms of the breadth of their modalities. Now, I take a different approach with some of our proprietary programs. Our folate receptor alpha antibody drug conjugate for ovarian and endometrial cancer is really an interesting program. It's one that we own and that we have in the clinic right now. And what we really try to do in that case is make sure that the ovarian cancer uh, doctors are very cognizant of our therapy, of what the data has shown, and what the opportunities are for entering their patients in clinical trials. So we're not yet uh, at a full-blown battle the way that uh, Bristol is with BCMA because there are many companies that are developing BCMA targeted therapies. There's only one other company that is in the clinic with a folate receptor alpha antibody drug conjugate. So that's a slightly different uh, opportunity. And really we're trying to make certain that the cancer specialists who would actually have patients for our trial understand the potential and want to enroll their patients in our existing trial or in future trials. So kind of two different worlds and in the ones that are highly competitive for, for, Mindshare. Um, mind share uh, by and large we are partnered with large pharmaceutical companies and they do the heavy lifting in that rather than us having to do so
0: so it's interesting that you should you know should talk about the BCMA program because you know that is well it's now partnered with Bristol Myers but it was originally uh, you're know, part of a deal that you you established back in 2014 with Celgene. i, I, I was just wondering you know, what we did you and your management team have to do when you first heard that Bristol Myers was actually going to acquire Celgene? You know, when the original deal was signed, was there some sort of, you know, contingency clauses uh, in place? Should, you know, Celgene be acquired?
1: Well, you know, no one really expects that one of your major partners, a big biopharmaceutical company is actually going to be acquired by another one. And so um, we, uh had to uh deal very quickly uh with the situation and and the first thing that i wanted to understand before even looking at the contract is uh are that is the team that is responsible for developing rbcma ADC going to be the same team that is going to be taking it forward uh, into later stages of clinical development because if that's not the case then um, the people who know the drug best and the people who've been planning the clinical trial strategy uh, are no longer there to support the drug, and you have to educate a whole new group of people. And we were fortunate in the, in the fact that uh, we learned very early on that that team was, in fact, going to continue in Bristol-Myers Squibb. So there was no disruption uh, of the clinical trial strategy or the clinical trial execution. And so once we understood that that was the case, then the, the uh, other challenge for us was really to make certain that we were continuing to have the good working relationship uh, with the new entity that we had enjoyed with Celgene. Uh, you referenced that the agreement uh, was signed in 2014. And so that's you know five years of building relationships. And many of those relationships were going to disappear not the clinical trial one, but many of the other ones were going to disappear. And so uh, as soon as we could understand uh, what the new structure of the organization was going to be and who were replacing the individuals uh, who we had built relationships with, we started the process of reaching out to rebuild or to build the new relationships with people within Bristol Myers Squibb. And that to me is uh, in many ways more important than an agreement because when you have a relationship you can then talk through any challenges that arise in that relationship and arrive at a good and sound business decision. And so I think we've been very successful in doing that. Um, It's helped by the fact that, as I said, a number of the Celgene people, including their clinical development team, stayed on as part of the Bristol organization. Uh, But, you know, we've been able to build new relationships and I don't think we've really missed a beat. Uh, as a consequence of that. So, frankly, I never had to go back and look at the agreement. Um, you know, it wasn't something that we had contemplated happening, but we were able to manage through it. And uh, I find our relationship with Bristol to be very solid at this point in time.
0: One of the other things that you refer to is the fact that, you know, you actually have sort of manufacturing capacity to, you know, sort of manufacture your own, um, uh, your own products for, you know, certainly for the clinical trials. Um, This is, you know, many biotechs aren't actually in that position. Um, I was just sort of, you know, wondering, could you sort of explain the sort of, you know, the rationale behind the decision to have your own uh, capacity in, in the first place? And, you know, what were the sort of difficult questions that you got from your own investors when you told them that this was a route you were going to take?
1: Well, it, it was really uh, an, a very important strategic decision for our company to go into manufacturing uh, and do so at an, at an early stage. Uh, you alluded to this earlier, Mike. We, we uh, make molecules in a way that's very different uh, from the normal large biopharmaceutical company. We don't use cells per se as the factory for making those molecules. We actually take the machinery that is inside the cell and extract it from the cell and that is then we call it an extract that is something that we then use to do protein synthesis instead of a living organism making our molecule the machinery uh, becomes uh, a tool for a biochemical synthesis and that is fundamentally different uh, than any other approach to making these sorts of molecules that we're talking about and so as the company was developing we knew we had to be able to do two things in order to be successful from a manufacturing standpoint. We needed to be able to scale the um, uh, production so that what we could do at the lab bench was something that could be done at much larger scale in a GMP manufacturing facility. So that was challenge number one and we worked to successfully do that. And then number two, we needed to be able to show that we could actually make a therapeutic And in order to do that, not only did we have to discover it, but then we had to make it in a facility. And ordinarily, if you go to a third-party contract manufacturing facility, they're all set up to take a CHO cell line or an E. coli cell line and make the molecule that, that you are interested in having them make. But in our case, none of the facilities around the world are set up to use our process. So we would have had to have paid someone else to establish a capability that didn't exist before and that we would be the only customer for. And so we were quite fortunate to be able to find a facility reasonably near our research facilities that was ideally suited for us. And so I think the thing that was most surprising um, to investors at the time uh, was that we established this facility well before we had a molecule that needed to be made in the facility. Most facilities are there, you go and you tell them what you want them to do, and then they use their machinery to make your molecule. For us, we had to build the facility, outfit it, without knowing what our first molecule was going to be. Now, we've successfully put three programs through that facility, and they're in the clinic today, and a fourth has been manufactured and will be in the clinic in the first quarter of next year. And so by being able to invest in our own facility, we were able to Uh, get more efficiencies in terms of the manufacturing uh, activities that we had. And we were also in a position to not have to worry about competing for manufacturing slots with other companies. The only manufacturing slots in that facility are those for us and for our partners. And so from that standpoint, it was a, a really solid strategic decision albeit a little bit risky, because what if we didn't have a drug that the manufacturing facility would make, but, but we felt confident that they were on their way, and so investing in that manufacturing facility actually paved the way for us to start clinical development much faster uh, than would have been the case, and in a much more cost-effective manner than would have been the case.
0: Now, I mean, you have a, a, a proprietary technology platform. Uh, I mean, it's been licensed to uh, Backside, site uh, it used to be called SutraVax um for 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 the production of vaccines in your business plans are are, is there any sort of uh your suggestion that you may actually sort of license that technology so other people can use the same platform to manufacture their own own molecules or is it something that you're actually going to you know keep in-house
1: well, we thought quite a lot about that question, and, and we did, you're right, uh, license our technology platform for the production of prophylactic vaccines uh, to uh, what's now called VaxSite. It was SutraVax, uh, and they've been very successful in an initial public offering recently, and they're using our technology to produce Uh, probably the the leading next generation pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, which will have broader protection than anything on the market or anything uh, that is under development uh, uh, in the big pharmaceutical uh, vaccine world uh, that exists today. So a really nice application of our technology in an area that we weren't, frankly, going to invest the time and energy and resources um, to take full advantage of the rest of the technology. Uh, But in the main, the business model for the company is one in which our extract uh, is a crown jewel. It is something that no one else in the world has access to. It gives us a competitive advantage in terms, uh, and our partners, a competitive advantage as well, in terms of our ability to make many different complicated molecules rapidly, rapidly, to test and screen them, to start to understand in a way that no one else can structure activity relationship so that we can optimize each of these molecules to be the best available therapeutic that we can engineer. And that's something that it just, frankly, even the big companies don't have the ability to do within the timeframe that we do, or even if they had a longer timeframe, they don't have the scale to be able to do it. It's really, uh, as I said, it's a crown jewel, and we treat it as such, and that's why we've been able to... Uh, achieve very high value collaborations with Bristol Myers Squibb, with uh, Merck, uh, and with EMD Serono. And so I think from our perspective, uh, I think of uh, uh, that technology uh, uh, advantage we have the way that Coca-Cola thinks about Coke syrup. Uh, If you want a Coke and you don't have Coke syrup, no bottling plant can make you a Coke. But if you have Coke syrup, you can ship it to any other bottling plant in the world and they can make you a Coca-Cola. So it's that uh, essence, that secret, that they guard very carefully, uh, that is one of the keys to their great success as a business. And we treat our extract the same way that they treat uh, their Coke syrup recipe. It's highly proprietary. And if we gave it away, then there would be no reason for people to have to work with us.
0: So, um, so you're looking, looking at the business model, um, you know, what are your ambitions? I mean, do you have plans to become a sort fully of commercial company where you have your your own sales force?
1: You know, I, th- I think it's um, been a long time since small biotech companies aspired to doing that. Um, it seems that it's much easier to take something to a certain point in time and then um, get sold or license the asset off to somebody else and let them uh, go the rest of the, the journey. I think for us, we have a passion for uh, cancer and for next generation cancer therapeutics. And I think we've got something special going on at Sutro. We have two drugs that are wholly owned in the clinic. We are working on a third uh, program that I hope to be able to talk about at the end of this year, or early next year, and many more behind that in addition to the programs we have in collaboration with our partners. And so I think we have the broad base of technology, the broad base of therapeutic approaches, the broad base of uh, opportunities uh, to treat cancer patients that is really unique and gives us every opportunity to become a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company. So do I have that as part of our vision? Yes, that is clearly part of our vision uh, downstream, uh, and we need our cancer therapeutics to be more mature in terms of where they are in stages of development before we start actually investing in building uh, the commercial infrastructure that will ultimately be necessary uh, in order to achieve that vision. But absolutely, I think we have what it takes, and it's a matter of time in my mind uh, before we actually take those steps towards fulfilling uh, the opportunity to be a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company. So stay tuned. Uh, it's not right now around the corner, but it is in the midterm horizon, and that's certainly something that we aspire to at this point in time.
0: Yeah, sure, because I mean, you know, for, for, for many biotechs, they kind of realize that to, you know to build critical mass Actually, holding on to your assets and then being able to sell them yourselves is is one way of building a company. I mean, if, if one looks at it, your know, sutra biopharma, you've got a market cap of around two hundred eighty million dollars uh, at the moment. You know, what do you <clears throat> what, what do you need to do to to grow that into you know, a much larger company?
1: I think you've you've put your finger on it. Right now, we have capital that takes us into twenty twenty two. We have a series of data releases that we anticipate both later this year and in 2021, uh, where we actually think investors will come to understand that the promise of our technology platform is actually being borne out in clinical trial results. Now, we're very optimistic about the early data that we've seen, but let's be honest, it's early data. It's in dose escalation, and patients in our trials have not been on the drug for as long as you would hope in order to understand the true therapeutic value and the true safety uh, of the drugs that we put in the clinic. And so for us, we see those clinical trials maturing and as they mature, if the early data continues to hold up, we think investors will come to appreciate that we have designed molecules that have single agent activity and that are on the path to being a best in class therapeutic uh, for cancer patients now once that is recognized and i say we're you know six ish maybe 12 months away from having that data Uh, I think our market cap will change. I think it will go up significantly, and that will provide us with additional financing opportunities to continue the journey to building uh, a fully integrated biopharmaceutical company. Uh, Really, uh, right now, we are in the blocking and tackling stages of doing clinical development, of treating patients, of seeing how they do on our therapy, and then reporting that back out. So stay tuned over the next six to 12 months, because that'll be uh, a time where we have Significant data uh, that really underpins our belief in these uh, in these molecules.
0: So, that, so um, finally, you know, you know, you've been you've been at the company now for you know sort of you know a decade uh, or, or just over over a decade. What what are the the sort of the business or the you know yeah what, what are the biggest leadership challenges that you're you're currently facing? Um, and, you know, what are you doing to, to, to address them?
1: You know, I, um, I, if we weren't in the pandemic, uh, I'd have given you a completely different answer uh, to that question. Uh, I'd have uh, talked about, um, you know, the importance of making good investment decisions in the third and fourth programs that we're going to put in the clinic. The importance of selecting uh, yet another partner beyond Bristol and Merck and EMD Serono, because I do think it's important for us uh, to have additional partnerships. And we are continuing to maintain dialogue even during the pandemic uh, with a number of those companies. Uh, But to me, I think the biggest challenge right now is ensuring that our workforce uh, continues to be as productive as they have been for the whole time that I've been privileged to lead Sutro Biopharma. You know, we have probably... Uh, 40% of our researchers uh, able to come into our office today. And they don't come into the office or into the labs uh, for the same amount of time uh, that they would have. And so they are doing a lot of uh, work uh, virtually, if you will, from home. But the ability to actually be in the lab, to run the experiments, to get the results, to inform your next experiment uh, is just not as robust as, as it has been. And so for me, what we try to think about is And even as this pandemic seems to be growing again in the United States, how do we keep the business of the company moving forward so that we can continue to develop new therapies uh, for cancer patients who are at uh, the end of their uh, therapeutic options? And how do we do that in a way that keeps our workers safe? Uh, As I said, there's lots of acrylic, um, everyone wears masks whenever they're on in the facility. Uh, there is an incredible amount of cleaning. And in the evenings, deep cleaning of areas that have been used uh, by our by our staff. Uh, but even with all of that, and, and some shift work going on and a few other things, even with all of that, we're still only able to bring about 40% of our research workforce uh, back on site and into the labs. And so the, the biggest challenge for me is trying to figure out how we can remain as productive as possible. What are, instead of doing, we have a great luxury with our technology. We can do hundreds of experiments simultaneously. Now, because we're not in the lab as much, even though we can do hundreds, we actually have to focus in on what are the ones that are most likely to be critical to advancing a program and do those. Now, we may do many different iterations of those, but we're just not doing the breadth of research that we did before because we don't have people on site to be able to do that. So, um, one of our uh, advantages of being able to kind of overwhelm, if you will, research by doing experiment after experiment more so than anybody else uh, is a little bit constrained. And so, trying to figure out how to get more people back in the labs and they want to come back on site. They know the work that they do is important for cancer patients. Figuring that out and maintaining their safety uh, is a a really significant challenge. And I'm fortunate that I'm advised by our chief medical officer and a multifunctional team uh, within our company. uh, And we are doing it in a stepwise fashion. And so, you know, I hope that even though the pandemic is far from over, uh, we're finding ways to bring more people back to maintain that high degree of productivity, but also to keep people safe. And as I said, fortunately, as of today, no one in our company has tested positive for the virus. And I want to keep that uh, track record going forward uh, as long as we can.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, obviously that, that sounds, that sounds like uh, a, a great um, uh, target to have uh, just to, just to come on that, that thing about the fact that you're sort of saying, right. Okay. So before you're running, you know, you know, many um, uh, tests or experiments in, in parallel. Now you're maybe doing it on you know a fewer uh, uh, sort of yeah, candidate options, etc. Uh, what what does what does that mean in terms of sort of like you know sort of the due diligence rigour? Does that mean actually there are uh, you're, you're able to spend a lot more time in that sort of you know that selection process? Um, because I guess there's nothing worse than uh, you know not necessarily you know. You can put through a program and it doesn't work, but the, the worst thing is probably to dump a program that actually could have worked. Um, mm-hmm. So, sort of that false negative. Um, so, I just wondered, does this mean that there is sort of your more rigor in terms of, you know, uh, testing the, the the opportunities that that you might look at?
1: I, I think we're. Um... We're, we're we're doing it a little bit differently. In in the past, when we had an idea, we would throw everything we could at that idea because we could do that. And um, you know, my CSO is fond of saying that you know we'll make many different molecules, even ones that probably don't make any sense to make, because we can do that. And it it's not burdensome, it's not costly, and sometimes you get surprised. Um, But now that people aren't in the labs as much and don't have that ability, as I said, to overwhelm the science, if you will, by just doing multiple different experiments, people are, when they're back in their home offices or home workspaces, um, they're actually digging deeper into the literature to understand um, at a level that they weren't able to get to because um, they didn't have the time available. And we had a technology that meant we could overwhelm an area, um, even if we didn't fully understand why what we were making works. So it's a much more concentrated effort to really sharpen the pencil a little bit, and then go back and do, again, you can do multiple experiments when you're in the lab, but do the ones that have uh, an even uh, sharper uh, focus based on the additional time you've been able to spend uh, understanding the biology, understanding the target, thinking about the various parameters that you might want to to, to do. Um, so, you know, from that sense, I think the science is at one level better, but I think what we lose, and um, that's why I'd like to get everybody back, is that serendipity that happens when you make something that um, probably didn't make sense based on what is known, but actually make sense in the end because we didn't have perfect knowledge uh, and you know by making something different uh it, we've actually created a, a therapeutic that no one would have conceived of before that's part of the excitement of our platform technology and i i look forward to the day when we can do that all the time
0: yeah so uh good so so bill thanks so much for for taking the time to to talk to me today um, yeah, the insights that you, you've shared um, are definitely going to resonate with with, with, with many uh, in, in, in our audience. Um, so if after listening to, to, to this broadcast, you'd like to uh, tune into future conversations in health, follow our LinkedIn page, um, where we'll be posting uh, alerts to, 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 to future episode releases. So in closing, I'd like to thank Bill again um, for, for joining me. And, thank uh, you our listeners for tuning in so until next time stay stay safe and healthy and uh, I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode